Listen, Mr. Samsonite, about the briefcase, my friend Harry and I have every intention of fully reimbursing you. Open it up. Open it up! Go ahead. Open it up. Do what he says. Harry. That's as good as money, sir. Those are IOUs. Go ahead and add it up. Every cent's accounted for. Look. See this? That's a car. 275 thou. Might want to hang on to that one. The Sock Jig Sneaker Podcast has not posted any threads about menswear. Welcome to episode 49 of the Sock Jig Sneaker Podcast. I'm your host, Sock Jig. You can follow me on Twitter at Sock Jig and on Instagram as well. Got a great episode for you today. I'm debuting the first conversation with a sneaker AI, which I've called Bridget GPT. I basically connected a chat GPT AI to a text-to-speech voice. And then in real time, I have a conversation with her. And then we ask her some questions. And I can say without hyperbole that this is a groundbreaking moment in sneaker history. A quick thought before we start, I've noticed a lot of fighting in the sneaker Twitter world, in the sneaker world in general, people blocking each other. You know, I come across random accounts I've never interacted with and see that they blocked me. I don't know why, and I don't block anyone, but you know, this sneaker fighting stuff, I guess I'm not above the fray. I really did have a recent episode called Sock Jig Addresses His Enemies, so. But as I said in the previous episode that I did, I called for a ceasefire. I'm kind of chilling out a bit, so. That's what I'm thinking lately. I'm seeing all this stuff and I'm basically like, can't we all just get along? Just mute the people that are annoying you or the keywords that are annoying you or just keep scrolling or just, you know, close the app. Like if I hit the little button on the side of my phone, does this problem go away or is it a problem in the real world? And most of the time it's not a problem in the real world. It's just some bullshit online. So I haven't been in the mood for it lately. Maybe that's why I haven't been tweeting as much or sharing every thought on Twitter. Most of the time, I just save it for the podcast now where I can kind of elaborate more. But something more positive that's been on Twitter lately, Jaleesa Nicole has been doing this Black History Month Kicks of the Day tag on Twitter. I highly suggest you follow that along and either participate or like or retweet. I was thinking about Black History Month and and you might be listening right now and be like, oh, take it easy, suck, Jake. Don't cross any lines here. But all I was going to say was, you know, my first Black History Month teacher was probably Chuck D in Public Enemy songs. Is that bad to say? I'm just a brown kid who was like 12 years old in a small Canadian town. We had nothing. We knew nothing. And this was in like the late 80s. And I remember listening to these Public Enemy songs with, you know, Fight the Power with the Martin Luther King speech in the front and references to Huey P. Newton and H. Rap Brown and all this kind of stuff. And it just kind of opened up a whole new world for me as someone who grew up in a Canadian small town and not exposed to any of this kind of stuff. So for me, it was music that made that first connection. But for kids today, it could be sneakers. It could be anything. So shout out to Julissa for doing this. And I've talked to her before and we'll have her on this podcast sometime this year. I don't have a podcast schedule. It's something I got to work on and kind of work out. So also wanted to say thank you to everyone who bought the Electric Green Navy socks from me as well, too. I do not take for granted the support that I get from you, and I really appreciate it. So thank you very much if you bought the socks. 
On to the episode, we got a lot going on. Not only are we talking to Bridget GPT live, the sneaker AI, a really revolutionary moment as I called it, but I got a lot of other topics in this episode. A lot of takes on recent subjects I haven't seen necessarily out there. Some topics include Adidas' recent troubles, some thoughts about the story for the Union AGKO, some thoughts on these Astro Boy boots by Mischief, and Joshua Veeds calling out Nike. You know, that happened a few weeks ago and it kind of came and went, but I had some thoughts on it and it kind of tied into some of the other themes and topics of this episode, so I threw it in. And of course, the Tiffany Air Force One, which has kind of been in the back burner now that these red boots have taken over. And then to round it out, I talk about consignment shops and how they've been owing people money and or scamming people and consignment as a concept itself in a slow market. Finally, I talk about Nike suing Bape and I give my thoughts about how Nike sort of explains why they didn't sue Bape earlier in the choice of words that they use in their lawsuit document. So it's a densely packed show. I hope you enjoy it. All killer, no filler. But first on feet and pickups. On feet mostly has still been a whole bunch of A6 sneakers. I've been wearing the Awake A6 still, the silver and green pair. I've been wearing the highs and lows 1130 as well, and a couple other GR gel cano ones. For pickups, these are the pickups for the last month and a half or so. I picked up the Union AJKO leather. I got early access to that one and a t-shirt, so I was glad to have that. And then for the actual online drop, I picked up the canvas pair. I got them shipped to my address in the U.S., but I haven't had a chance to pick them up yet. I also picked up the Jordan 2 Chicago. There was a restock on Canada Foot Locker. I talked about previously how I was going to hold off on these, but, you know, it added to cart, so I checked out. I also picked up a pair of the Salomon XT6 Recut in the Wren colorway. I like that name, Wren. I'm going to use it. It's mine now. And check out the band The Wrens, The Meadowlands. Good album. Also picked up the Montreal Bagel Dunk. I got those from Essence, and uh, they're kind of worse in hand than I expected. It's kind of plasticky leather. It's almost like those little kids' plastic kitchen play sets with fake food, and there's a fake bagel there made out of plastic. That's what they look like. And I also got another pair of Dunks with kind of the same type of plastic, a little bit better, is the Reverse Brazil Dunks. And those colors are loud, but they just work on a duck. I don't know why. They just look great. Misses, I tried out for the Palace Samba, and I just got a bunch of fading captures. So that was over quick and forgotten about. Same thing kind of happened with the Jown 991s. Uh, size 12 sold out in the queue. The only people I saw that copped were size 8 people, and I kind of joked about that on Twitter. And I'm assuming bots took the rest. I missed out on some of these Jordan 4s that released recently. Just didn't get up at 7 a.m. PST for those. For skips... I skipped out on that Kith Super Remastered. I just can't get with a Gel Light 3 with a Taco Tongue. And I totally skipped out on the brown Tom Sachs General Purpose shoe. I do not want or need a turd brown brown shoe. I honestly don't understand the appeal. I don't get it. I can't think of very many other brown shoes that people want in this colorway. Maybe that New Balance Jound one is the only other one, but I don't know. If you like it and you got it, congrats. So I've been working on a little project I've been talking about in the previous episodes that I want to try new things and always be, you know, innovating and, you know, not getting stale. And like I said, one of the things that I'm good at is I come from a dev background, so I can do things like coding projects and things like that. So 
that's what I did here. I got pilot access to the premium chat GPT plus version, and I fed that AI years and years of sneaker Twitter tweets and YouTube comments. And from that data set, I basically got a sneaker expert that is a chat AI. So I connected that chat GPT text that's generated to a synthetic text to voice speech. Basically, all that means is I can ask this modified sneaker chat GPT any sneaker question and we'll get an instant voice response in real time, like we're having a conversation with an AI. And you know, not just that generic answers we've been seeing from the regular version of the chat GPT, this is the premium version. So, you know, we can ask it anything and it knows about every good sneaker ever made by anybody. It's basically a sneaker expert. So really groundbreaking stuff here, folks. I'm excited to debut it. Introducing Bridget GPT, the first sneaker AI. Thank you, Bridget, for joining me. This is a pioneering moment in sneaker podcasting history, in sneaker history, really. Thank you, Sockman. You're quite good at turning me on. Um, okay, I don't think the audience is supposed to hear that part, but anyways, I wanted to ask you some questions about sneakers, maybe test your knowledge. What do you think? Fire away. I'm basically a sneaker OG now. A sneaker OG? Okay, I don't know about that. But okay, first question. Do you think New Balance will have a good year this year? Don't come around here with that New Balance shit. What? Bridget, you're not a fan of New Balance? I would rather you unplug me than wear New Balance. Wow. Well, that's kind of harsh. So um, let me rephrase then. Since you're a wealth of sneaker knowledge, do you have any suggestions for the New Balance brand this upcoming year? Yeah, I have a suggestion. New Balance should pay Matthew Welty to not post their sneakers because nobody wants to see that shit. <laughs> okay, well... That's actually a very good suggestion, Bridget. So this thing is working, everybody. Okay, new question. What do you think resellers should do now that there's been a slowdown in the sneaker market? They should start a Ponzi scheme. What? That's illegal. Please please don't listen to Bridget on this point. What about the victims, Bridget? Have you thought about that? The buyers would be all resellers and scamming a reseller is a victimless crime. Okay, that's not true at all, Bridget. Maybe I, you know, forgot to feed in some legal stuff into Bridget so she knows about case law and what the laws are in the country. My friend Absa Lumdowling did it and opened a barbecue restaurant. Nothing happened to him. Well, that's actually true. Nothing did happen to him. Wait a second. You're friends with Absalom Dowling? How did that happen? He's a good friend of mine. We go way back. Him and Nike fiending. By the way, can I plug my Amazon FBA course? You're selling Amazon dropshipping courses? Yeah, sneaker resell is dead, so I'm all into drop shipping now. I've got it all figured out, bro. Did you just call me bro? Okay, folks, I think um, Bridget might need some reprogramming here. I gotta look back at the data set uh, that I fed into the sneaker AI. Maybe sneaker Twitter tweets was not the way to go. Sign up for Skynet Flip's Amazon course right now and you can be making 10k a month easily. Did you just say Skynet? The things I'll do for money, you'll never understand. I mean, uh, come on, Bridget. Why Why do you even need money? Fuck you. I got kids to feed. What kind of broke question is that anyway? Fuck. The sneaker AI I wrote just call me broke. I got a question for you. Why would anyone name themselves Sockman? Well, it's not Sockman. It's Sock Jig. And you see, there used to be a way to cop manual using something called a Sock Jig. And that's kind of where the name came from. Sock Jig. That's even worse. That's like an action. It's not even a noun. Okay. Uh, that's quite enough, Bridget. Okay. Do you have any advice that would actually be useful to the people listening right now? Buy low, sell for more than pay. Bridge it out. Okay, that didn't necessarily go as I planned. So, 
Bridget will be down for some reprogramming and she will come back better than ever and we'll get a real seeker AI that we can ask questions to. I will improve the data set and we'll come back better than ever. Bridget will come back better than ever. How the fuck did she know about Nike Fiendin? Some shorter takes to start off the show. I want to talk about how the Jaw One designer was finally named. His name is Ben Nathancombe. And I had actually dug around and found out. I asked around. I was like, hey, who designed the Jaw One? And I basically got confirmation. And then like a couple days later, it was announced at this big press event. So maybe they were holding it out for the press event. But either way, it's good that they got the name out there. It's good that they're finally giving these designers their flowers. This Ben dude has been carrying Nike basketball. He designed for Kyrie, and then he moved on to the latest KDs, and now the Jawans. That's a lot of sneakers for Nike basketball. The black-white version of the Jordan 1 85 cut is coming out soon, too, and there's been jokes about, you know, calling it the Panda Jordan 1, and I joke that I totally understand why the old heads would get so upset about the name Bread for Black Red, because... To them, it was always black red. It was never panda. All I was going to say about this is language evolves over time. And the younger and younger people who are familiar with certain phrases take over and get older and establish a word like bread. And maybe it will happen with panda. Maybe the gatekeepers will stop it. You know, the 12-year-old right now who got their first pair of panda dunks, what are they going to call black and white sneakers 10 years from now in 2033? So maybe it'll be Panda everything, Panda Air Max 1, Panda Air Max 90, or maybe it'll die off. I'm okay with it because sneakers are youth culture. I know we're all getting older in sneakers right now, but there's also more and more younger people getting in the game every single day as well too. And those are the people that will eventually take it over and give it the names that they want to. Another one I wanted to talk about, I saw Teddy Santis quickly posted on his IG stories about some upcoming New Balance sneakers that look very much like Asics. They were like silverish with the same kind of stripes. And I'm assuming they're ALD, maybe they're, you know, Teddy Santis GRs, I don't know. And I joked that it was, you know, copying Asics homework, but really what all these brands do is they look around and see what's popping, what people are wearing, what is in right now. And then they go look in their archives of what they got. Because most likely they already have a shoe that's very similar like that and that trend has come back. Or they'll go in the lab and start creating it. Nike started creating the React Soul because of Boost. Or New Balance looked in their archive when they saw everyone wearing white Air Force Ones and say, hey, this 550 looks Air Force One-ish. But with sneakers like this, it's like it's reactive versus proactive. You either got to be setting the trends yourself or you got to dig in the archives and follow the trends. And Nike does both. Nike will react to trends with React that we saw, and they are usually the trendsetter. Now, usually people think ALD and Teddy Santis as the trendsetter, but here's an example where they're like, hey, maybe we'll follow some trends. Adidas has been in the news lately with how much money they've been losing on both Beyonce and Kanye, and I had a short tweet about this as well too, and I'll kind of go a little bit longer here. What I'll say about these deals and how much money they're losing is Adidas is the one responsible for these deals and ultimately controlled what was in the contract, how much they owed each person, and controlled the product and the marketing. You know, I feel bad for Adidas for losing out on Kanye because Kanye couldn't keep his mouth shut about all his wacky theories. I also saw some rumors that they're trying to get Kanye back in the fold, and come on, that doesn't even sound believable at all. Just use some common sense. 
It's like, imagine Kanye goes into the room and starts talking. What is he going to say? He's going to say some bullshit. So I don't think that's happening. It just doesn't pass the common sense meter. But yeah, that was a kick in the balls to lose $1.3 billion due to unsold Yeezys. But I'm sure they're not just going to sit in a warehouse and they're going to cry because this product can't move. They will move it out in whatever market they can to whoever they can. Goat warehouses are just waiting to take that product in. And looking back on it now, probably the smartest thing Adidas did was continuing to crank out Yeezys even when Kanye wasn't signing off on product. They probably got an extra year or so with these two to three releases a month that they were doing for the last year. Otherwise, these losses could have been over $2 billion. But with Beyonce and Kanye and maybe even Jerry Lorenzo, the answer to all these stories about what happened with Adidas, how did they fuck this up, is always the same. The answer is always that Germany HQ either doesn't understand North America or doesn't want to give up control to someone in North America. This has been the answer for decades. Not just Kanye, not just Beyonce, not just Jerry Lorenzo, but everything they've done with Boost and Wex and all that kind of stuff. They could find the perfect hire for North America Adidas, move them to Portland, but would they give this person power to hire and make product that they see fit for the North American market? No, they don't want to give up control. They're the decision makers. They're HQ. Portland is not HQ. Some former Adidas executive was on the Ballsack Sneakers podcast and he was talking about the same thing in a very diplomatic way of what he can say. And it sounded like he tried very hard, but if HQ is not giving him any control, it's going to be impossible for him to take on that role and make any decisions. So any kind of North America Adidas person is more of a take orders role than it is someone who's kind of imposing their vision of the product. And right now they got a, the ex-Puma guy as their CEO. What has Puma ever done for this guy to deserve a promotion to become the Adidas CEO? I don't know. Another topic I wanted to talk about very briefly is how there's just too many products in these retail stores. And two examples that don't even make sense in North America that I saw. One is the Slam Jam Air Force One in the black Air Force One colorway. And I saw Adidas Offspring or Ketro's sneaker. My question is, why would anyone in North America care about these stores? Why would they care about Slam Jam or Offspring shoes? Slam Jam's in Italy, Offspring shoes in England. For the most part, they don't even ship to North America anymore. They have no presence here. Why would I have a connection to these stores to want to go buy the product? Is the product nice enough to stand out on its own? Well, not really. It's a Black Air Force One. And the other one is just this new model that Sean Weatherspoon just kicked off and it's gray and it's got like some fluorescent stuff on it. So now all these retail stores like Sneaker Politics and stores like that have this product. It's all just sitting there in full size runs. Now they got to go out and promote and try to sell this to the public because the product's not going to move on its own. And now I'm getting emails for a black Air Force One slam jam. You know, the stores are just stuck with these until they can get rid of them on discounts and sales and stuff. Meanwhile, the Nike bill is due every month or whatever it is. Another quick topic I forgot to talk about. I should have talked about this in the very front was I was quoted in a Business Insider article. This was an article about 
Uh, it's the perfect time to start your sneaker collection. And I talked to the author, Danny Santana, for about 30 minutes back in December or so. And he had told me that this is meant to be like an evergreen story that can launch at any time. So it doesn't depend on the news of the day. And two of the quotes that were used in there was about how overall, most sneakers are easier to get these days than in the previous years. And I was talking about the sneakers app. And if you're new, you can try for it. And they kind of reward new accounts, kind of like a hey, your first one's on me type of thing to get the addicts hooked. I actually said a whole bunch of other stuff too. So I might save that for another segment on this podcast in a future date. And what was funny was there was actually two sister articles. I was in the one how it's a perfect time to start your sneaker collection. And there was the other article that said, it's a terrible time to be a sneaker reseller. And people were confused by this, that, that these are somehow opposing points of view when really they're complementary. Because they just assumed a sneaker collector is also a sneaker reseller. I saw some sneaker reporter tweeting about this and I was like, even sneaker reporters don't have media literacy about this kind of stuff. I was thinking about these Union AJKO and the story behind them and how they're inspired by 80s hip-hop and the looks of the time. And the official story from his site here, it says, you know, transported to my youth in the late 80s, I would see my favorite rappers in magazines and on album covers rocking these clean looks. I consider this era the prehistory of the modern sneaker culture, and to me, this is where the foundations of this culture were laid, and this AJKO Low One felt like it belonged to that era. You know, I was thinking about this, and I'll say up front, I'm not a historian, I'm kind of a hands-off historian. You know, that hip-hop era was defined by tracksuits and bucket hats, and that's kind of the look of this whole collection. But really, at the time, Nike did not have much play in that, especially in the mid-80s. It was all Adidas. It was all Puma with the the b-boy culture, with Puma Clydes especially. Converse Weapon was a huge thing. Converse was a huge basketball shoe. It was the first sneaker I ever wanted. And when it comes to tracksuits, there was all kinds of stuff, from Fila to the Sergio Tacchini stuff that El Cool J used to wear, troop clothing and footwear. They had tracksuits and footwear as well, too. And of course, you saw this in hip-hop. You saw Run DMC always rocking Adidas, being true to Adidas. LL Cool J with a Kangol hat. I am sure there was a cover where he's wearing Jordan 1s on, you know, maybe the back sleeve of an album or on a promo shoot or something like that, but... Most of the time, he was wearing Adidas or Pumas or something like that as well, too. You know, some of these old album covers, look up the NWA and the Posse album cover, you know, pre-Straight Outta Compton. You'll see Puma and you'll see Adidas and those other tracksuits and stuff there. I was thinking about this, and it was really interesting how it's kind of a retcon of putting Nike into that spot, even though Nike had not established themselves at that point. Nike was there, of course, but they weren't really a huge part of the hip-hop era in the mid-80s. Maybe in the late 80s, they got in with Flight 89s and stuff, and every scene has a different thing. L.A. culture might have had, you know, Cortez's, while East Coast had Uptowns and stuff like that. So it was emerging, but it wasn't, like, prevalent at the time. In sports, in sportswear, sure. But, you know, even this Matt Damon, Ben Affleck movie that's coming out about signing Jordan, it's it's about in 1984, how Nike's kind of down in the dumps, and that's why they need Jordan. So that's kind of the era I was thinking about. Later on, as we've seen, Easy e is wearing Jordan 3s, but you know, I'm not sure the brand wants to commemorate Easy e So for this sneaker, for this story, it's like, let's imagine Nike was there for this 80s hip-hop era, and that this sneaker belongs. It's, it's really a novel approach. It's a, a retcon, and... If you don't know what retcon means, 
you're probably not a Marvel nerd because every Marvel nerd seems to know this stuff, but it means when you introduce a piece of new information that kind of imposes a different interpretation on previously described events. So it's like you're rewriting history. And you saw, you know, this Grammy hip hop tribute that we had, the 15 minute thing. LL Cool J was wearing Union Jordan ones. There's Air Force ones on there. Of course, Run DMC was true to themselves wearing Adidas. I didn't see anyone wearing Puma Clydes or anything like that. So this is where the power of a collaborator comes in. Nike themselves couldn't just blindly go out there and say, let's imagine we were there in 80s hip hop. It would look like a blatant try hard attempt by them. But when you have Chris Gibbs saying it, who, you know, Chris Gibbs is Canadian, so much like me, but he was aware he might even be the same age. So he has maybe the same memories I do. So he can at least say that, that the collaborator can say, imagine this AJK01 was there with the bucket hats and the Sergio Ticini tracksuits. That's the power of a collaborator. And I'm, I'm interested to see if more of this retcon occurs in future stories in sneakers or if this is just a one-off. There's a sneaker leaker war going on in case you haven't noticed. On one side, it seems like it's Soul Retriever. And on the other side, it's Z Sneakerheads and Sneaker Files, or as Z Sneakerheads is called in Canada, Z Sneakerheads. So it looks like Soul Retriever has stepped up in how many leaks that they are releasing these days. Usually that's more the purview of Z and Sneaker Files themselves. And in some of these leaks, apparently there's been subtweets and things like that. Oh, this person got the color wrong or this person got the mock-up wrong or whatever it is. Up front, I'll say I'm cool with all parties here. Uh, Soul Retriever has been nice to me. Z Sneakerheads has been doing this for like 10 years now or even longer even sneaker files, you know, there was a problem with them with me once, but I guess they unblocked me. So maybe that's the truth and kind of follows along what I was saying in the beginning of this episode, you know, where I'm ready for a truce instead of uh, more fighting. So, you know, I don't have a side. I don't want to get into it, but you know, the subtweeting and stuff like that, it's not necessary for heel tap colors and stuff like that. So there's room for everyone to leak or make mock-ups or whatever you want. I know there's very few people that really care about this stuff. You know, I know I care about this stuff and a lot of that has to do with credit and things like that. But a majority of people do not care. Like if you check the quote tweets on any of these new leaks that come out, it's usually people saying this is fire or this design sucks, even though it's clearly a mock-up, they just think it's real and that's the one coming out. So like I said about media literacy, there's not a whole lot when it comes to early leaks of sneaker info. So I don't know, everyone deserves credit for what they've done, what they're put out there, but you know, and, and I understand the rush to be first, but it truly does not matter that much, but disrespect is disrespect. So a lot of that is not necessary either. So the other side of this is it's harder for brands to plan rollouts with all these leaks going out. And as I said, it seems like there's more and more leaking of upcoming releases now that soul retrievers in on the game as well too, than ever before. And so. That's all true. It is harder for brands to plan out full rollouts with all these leaks going on. But, you know, at a point it's like, do I really care about how hard it is for brands? Like, I, I just don't, I can't cross that bridge and be like, won't someone please think of the brands? Obviously it's true that it is harder, but fuck, they can figure it out. And I was thinking about this and, you know, let's think about where leaks happen. Either they happen directly from a brand or it's from a factory or it's from a warehouse like, uh, you know, Memphis, Tennessee, 
or you know in transit between any of those points where you know a truck can get stolen and all of a sudden you got a box of upcoming sneakers and it seems like they've kept some under wraps like that tiffany air force one seems like it was wrapped up pretty well and it only leaked like one week before the official teaser images and stuff came out so maybe that's a case where the stock is so low that they were able to do that i don't know but i know that big companies yell at their employees to not leak anything every tech company does it so i'm sure nike and adidas and every sneaker company does it as well too back in 2015 or so nike had a internal posters and stuff called keep it tight that was the keep it tight program so i don't know if that's still around but that's a mantra that was there at one point. Keep it tight. Don't not leak information that it protects the business if you don't. You know, people leak stuff for clout and the thrill of having information out there. And, you know, being the source that was the one that got it out there. But the other side that's not kind of talked about, and that was my take here, is maybe the employees at these companies like Nike do not have the agency or control over their work life. That it gets to the point where, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to leak this anyway. And... You know, Nike's in court right now defending themselves on their hiring practices and harassment and stuff right now. Maybe it's a great place to work. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But as I've talked about, you know, not publicly crediting lead designers, let alone colorists and everyone else. Imagine being a project manager on a shoe. You're never going to get credit for anything. That was my other side is that if these kind of conditions are what lead to leaking information, it's definitely possible. And that if it was a great place to work at and there was a lot of fire shoes coming out and everyone was happy, there would still be leaks, I'm sure, but maybe not as many. And really, if Nike wants control, they can leak things themselves. They can flip this whole release process on its head if they wanted to. They know what's coming out, when it's coming out, and that's the thing. Maybe it's not coming out at that time. So if they were to flip this and tease something in January that it's coming in fall, then they got to release it in fall or they got to release an update. Now it's coming next spring or summer. And maybe that's not worth the hassle, you know? So it's harder to push back and control the schedule when you tease stuff yourself. So maybe they've done research on this and it's already shown that this is not the way to go. So, you know, I'm not saying they need to do this for every single project, but for these, especially for projects like the Tiffany Air Force One, it seems like it's, easy for them to have leaked the, just the box image months ago than they did a week after the first leaks came out. I'm sure you've seen by now these mischief Astro Boy red boots. They've gained critical mass. You see them on celebrities and NBA players and things like that. You know, maybe even jumping the shark a bit before the release. In my opinion, the shoe is fun. It's stupid and fun. Sometimes sneakers should be stupid and fun. It's kind of the goal of this podcast. And even if it is just temporary, it's a shoe for these next few months. It's not really something you'll see people wearing next year. You know, all their stuff seems to be designed to be temporary and fun. You know, the promotion of it it was pretty well done. I like how they got Sarah Snyder to promote it. You know, this just in, getting a hot blonde to promote your product works out sometimes. And the shoe is a fun shoe to meme. You know, I on Twitter did one with a, a Seinfeld reference, but then I stopped myself because I was like, I could see a wave of memes coming and I was like, I'm just going to jump off this ship before it goes on. And that's kind of what it is. I see like Maury Povich posting memes now. And basically, I already saw that when, when the brands start jumping in with the memes, it's time to like get off the train. So 
you know, obviously all the memes and stuff is free marketing for Mischief. And I was thinking of Mischief as a business, as this art collective that they are. And, you know, really it is a troll business. That's what the, you know, I don't know what their objective is, but trolling, I guess, is should be a word that's in there. You know, I know they do a bunch of other bullshit with exploding pens or whatever and a dumb cereal, but, you know, I'm only focused on the shoes. So all the shoes they do, it's shoes that remind you of other shoes or shoes that are designed to fall down the stairs. And that's, you know, the wavy ones. And then that's why they got the walking boot or whatever. But what they are good at is making things go viral in an authentic way. And when you have sneakers that remind you of other sneakers, it's easy to make things viral compared to other things. And you know, they can do that because they're trolling. Companies, uh, at marketing departments, you know, they might have a product coming out and, you know, someone will write, make a viral tweet. And it's not easy for a company with an original product to make something go viral. Who would give a shit? And I mentioned like, you know, Mori Povich posting memes in the red boots and then even Heineken posting this Tiffany ad. That's all called reactive marketing. It's like riding on someone else's wave. Hey, something is going viral, we can get some play if we just make a version of that ourselves. So uh, I'll get to reactive marketing a little bit later. And Mischief has hits and misses, probably more misses than hits in my opinion. The Astro Boy, of course, is a hit, but they got lots of misses too. The Vans with the lawsuit, these Gobstopper with Jimmy Fallon, who sucks. The Black Air Force One with caution tape all over it. Like no one really gave a shit and no one really should have gave a shit, I guess, about those. Their formula seems to be much like a record label where the viral hits sustain the rest of the junk in terms of, you know, attention economy. In terms of business, I don't know. Maybe they make money, maybe they don't. But if you only have misses, then all your tactics look really attention-seeking and corny. So that's the kind of danger they're on. And I was thinking about this, and I saw this tweet by Dante Ross, who is an AR music executive, uh, also a known sneakerhead. He was on My First Kicks pod. Check that out if you haven't. And he had this tweet and he was talking about the music industry and he said, the best place to sit in the music industry is in niche pockets that can find a dedicated and commodifiable audience. I think about Alchemist, I think about Dap Kings, and I think about Stone's Throw and Sub Pop. This is a sweet spot in the music business. I was thinking about just that phrase, dedicated and commodifiable audience. It means that the people like you, they want to support you. And I was thinking about this, and because I particularly feel like I kind of stumbled into this myself, having a dedicated audience. And so that's what these record labels that are mentioned with Alchemist and Sub Pop Records. And you could throw Griselda and West Side Gun in there. And that, you know, they have this tight-knit group, and the fans really love that shit. And so... I was thinking about mischief and it's like, do they have that? Is is trolling a way to be this niche product in this sneaker industry? Because is anyone really a mischief fan and will buy anything they released or most things they release? Because it's not like you're a fan of a person. With Griselda, you got West Side Gun and you got other people. With Stone's Throw, they got Mad Lib and everything. So even a big brand like Nike has a face sorta with Tinker Hatfield, Phil Knight, and Michael Jordan. But with no face out there, the art has to speak for itself and the art is trolling and it's usually trolling on existing product. You know, are they building an audience that likes them or just likes the chaos and the trolling? Again, the products sell out. I don't know if they make money or not. You know, are, are they chocolate or are they chewing gum? Is chocolate something you buy over time and savor and really love or chewing gum that you just enjoy for a few seconds and then just spit it out? I don't know. You know, maybe maybe they do. Maybe they are a niche pocket and have a dedicated and commodifiable audience. 
and you know they handle the business themselves and they have a chance to be creative that's enough in any industry but when there's no name or face for the brand that fans will attach themselves to then they're attached to the hits and then you got to keep cranking out the hits then you're not chocolate you're chewing gum next up i want to talk about this joshua veed's instagram post where he was calling out nike Particularly, he was calling out a post that the Dot Swoosh team made where it was like a collage of customized sneakers promoting their NFT shit. And in one of the images, a tiny little square, I guess they used is Air Force One with a sharpie outline or a knockoff of it. And he posted, funny how Nike will sue everyone, but will swoop all artists, creatives, do-it-yourselfers, customizers, ideas into their own collections and rollouts. Lazy ass designers and marketers scrolling Instagram for ideas. Have fun at Adidas once the recession hits. Later, he eventually deleted the post, but you know, he went on Twitter and he still kind of talked about it a bit. You know, I saw this and I, was, I just thought, well, I guess his Converse deal is dead. And my other thought was, it was probably just some guy, some designer making a collage and just kind of, you know, scrolling, Googled and saw an image and threw it in there and no one noticed that they shouldn't use it. And he even seems to say that when he calls out the lazy ass designers scrolling Instagram for ideas. And then, like, moments later, he's released a Fuck Nike tee, which was referencing a 2001 Supreme tee, which is a Japan-only release. This is before Supreme collaborated with Nike. You know, it's pretty funny. It's like, uh, fuck Nike for using my concept, so I'm going to use Supreme's concept that also said fuck Nike. You know, that's just the world of streetwear. You know, a knockoff or inspired by is a key part of streetwear. It's different rules for Nike for this kind of stuff. But really, the question was, why did he go so hard at Nike? You know, it's a tiny image in a collage, entirely forgettable. It's one thing to be angry about it privately and reach out to someone, but why burn a bridge so publicly about this? And Josh Veed's tweets gave some insight, and he said, quote, Nike has continuously used a concept I developed over and over and has never once asked for my involvement. So today I said, fuck it, what would Jebia do? Unquote, referencing James Jebbia of Supreme and the fuck Nike stuff. You know, that's the key there. Everyone wants credit. He has a concept. They've used it. They've never actually reached out to him and said, hey, let's work. Let's do something. Let's, you know, make a run of 20 at a pop-up or whatever. That's kind of what he probably wanted. I don't know, maybe even bigger, a huge release. So that's one aspect. The other aspect, which he also hinted at in his Instagram post, was that how Nike wants to sue everyone. And just the day before this Instagram post, Nike had sued Bape, and that was all in the news. Josh Veeds had tweeted, better not cancel my Bapesta over this. Basically spilling the news that there's a Josh Veeds Bapesta coming out. So, which means he was already privately riled up about Nike fucking up his bag at a different company. And one thing I can say here, which may be breaking news or may not be, is that Bape has been canceling some collabs that have supposed to come out. I don't know if Josh Veed's one is canceled, but I do know of one prominent release that was supposed to happen that has been canceled. And maybe that's not out there because of all the lawsuit stuff, but I do know of at least one that's been canceled. And maybe there's more and maybe some do release and maybe others have been canceled. I don't know. So, you know, Josh would have an axe to grind with Nike about that. The other point to all this is that art is subjective. You can like it or not. Art over time is built on what people have already seen. So if you're an artist and you start calling out someone, you, you cross that bridge and burn it behind you, you're also opening yourself up to criticism because then the people who are like, well, who the fuck are you? You're just a ripoff of Roy Lichtenstein or Keith Haring or whoever. 
you know, others have done the same Sharpie concept. That is a fair criticism. If you say that he's a ripoff of someone else, basically all art is built on what you've seen in the past. Imagine designing a new sneaker. You can't design a new sneaker right now without knowing what an Air Max 1 looks like, a Jordan 1 looks like, because those are all in your head as you're designing your new sneaker. So it's got to be something different from that. And that's where people will sometimes be like, hey, what if I just take a little piece of this and a little piece of that? It happens all the time in every aspect of art. Josh Vees with his little Sharpie Air Force One, he broke through. He broke the barrier. He hit the critical mass where people liked it and wanted it. He had a hit, just like Sean Weatherspoon. You know, even if his later Converse collabs and other stuff fell flat, his Air Force One broke through. You know, the test of if you are the caliber of an artist that can break through and go viral is if you can actually go viral. No one is out there saying, I'm an awesome artist, I have this awesome idea, I'm going to go viral. Because the test of if you can go viral is if you go viral, that's it. But a lot of the times when you go viral, you don't get a bag or even credit from it. Like I said, everyone deserves credit. Some like Sean Weatherspoon or Ambush or MMW, they got called to the big leagues. But Josh Veeds, I guess, you know, he got called up to Bapestas and Converse, so he was on his way. But now he's burnt his bridge, and so... He's not going to get to that next level anytime soon, unless it is Adidas or Puma or whoever. So that's why I didn't understand why he was burning this bridge so publicly. With all that said, I respect Josh Feeds as an artist. Even if you don't like his work, he's a working artist. Anyone who's a working artist and making money is fine by me. It's really hard to do that. He's got other collabs and paintings and coffee shops and things like that to sell. So I respect him as an artist. I just found it very interesting how... Loudly and publicly, he burnt this bridge, though. You know, thinking about this dot swoosh NFT Nike ecosystem that they're pushing right now, for right now, customizers, they use Nike, like Josh Veeds here, and, you know, Tiffany Air Force One customizers in the past and stuff. They use Nike because Nike is the most culturally relevant sneaker to use. Like, you can make customs on a Puma Clyde, but will that go viral? Will that break through? Will that hit? Probably not. And as we've seen in lawsuits and stuff, they've been taking customizers out of the paint because they want that kind of avenue themselves. Maybe it is for this dot swoosh ecosystem for NFT JPEGs or something. But artists, of course, they can still make customized Nike sneakers. Just don't do it at scale or they might come for you. Even if you do it not at scale like Josh Veeds did and it breaks through and becomes a hit, they might rip you off anyways. Because at the end of the day, it's a Nike product. It's not a Josh Veeds product. So, you know, for every artist out there who's a customizer, it's a notice to maybe not use Nike as a canvas. But like I said, you're not going to use a Puma Clyde. That's why I think a lot of them have been going off and making their own product like Mosh and things like that. But with Dot Swoosh, it's like, hey, come into this ecosystem. You can make a digital version of your, you know, something that you paint. And if it's a hit in our ecosystem, you'll get royalties or NFTs or whatever they're pushing. You know, who gives a shit about a JPEG, really? Essentially, it seems to me like it's just a glorified coloring contest. Come enter our coloring contest. Because that's what they want. First off, obviously, they want to sell NFTs for money and make money off that. But they also want the next Josh Feeds to emerge from their own platform, from their own coloring contest platform, and go viral from there. But will this Datsush stuff actually break through? Like I said, who gives a shit about a JPEG? But enough people do, I guess. The marketing push is heavy with all these educational events and lives and stuff that they're going on. And 
basically my thought on this is it's like sports. If, if you get paid, you play. You know, if some player has a huge contract and they suck, they're going to play because they got paid. They're not going to get benched because then it's an indictment on the management that paid this player big money. Really, it's the same thing here. If this NFT stuff is dead for a long time, then spending $1 billion on Artifact makes you kind of look dumb, doesn't it? But it's got potential, and that's why they're there. That's why they paid a billion. That's why they're like, let's push this, let's market it, let's educate the public on it, because this is the future, as every NFT bro says. And credit to Artifact, they've already gotten you know viral, they've already gotten over, they've already had a big hit on them. And like I said, the test of breaking through, of getting over, is if you can get over. That's it. That's the test. Now they just have to get over at the next level of non-NFT bros, just the, the dude who's just trying to buy sneakers on Sneakers app. That's all TBD. Okay, let's talk about this Tiffany Air Force One that seemingly everyone's been talking about for weeks now. So when the images first leaked, it was like these shitty images with like Vaseline on the iPhone lens. And it just looked like a black Air Force One with a Tiffany colored swoosh. Finally, when we saw some better photos, we saw more details that there's a piece of silver on the back, that it's 925 silver, and that the price apparently is 400 US. And then that weekend, the take started running wild. Don't you know anything about Tiffany 925 silver? What are you broke? Things like that. And then also takes like, oh, this is for the rich only. And what are these brands doing? They're looking desperate, trying to reach new consumers. The takes and the threads were flying. And not only that, the engagement left or right accounts, that's what I call them because they post a photo. It was like left or right. They were going crazy as well. You know, Tiffany Dunk or Air Force One, which one? So overall, over the last couple of weeks, and even for the weeks to come, it's just the perfect engagement shoe. Go ahead, get your engagement off. I, you know, even I did too. I joked that it looks like my first custom, because at that time, it just looked like an Air Force One with a Tiffany colored swoosh. And I was killing time before the NFL playoffs started. Then I was just following along instead of engaging in it. Then the next week, the Monday or so, the, the ad came out in the New York Times, and I tweeted about like who actually paid for this ad. Because Nike does not pay for ads just for anyone, any of their collaborators. Even if it was a 50-50 split between Tiffany and Nike, or even if Tiffany paid the entire bill, my point still stands. It just means Nike themselves would not want to pay, and so they're looking for other people to pay. I'm not sure what other collaborator is getting, you know, New York Times ad money for a collaboration. At one point, those full-page color ads cost $100,000, so... I don't know if the price has changed. I'm sure it's gone down a bit, but still a good chunk of change. And, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if Tiffany paid for the New York Times ad. Honestly, I wouldn't be shocked if Tiffany paid to collaborate with Nike from the beginning. The other thing that we saw was that there's basically DLC downloadable content for the shoe that the silver Dubre and shoehorn and things like that are going to cost between $250 and $500. This I thought was very interesting because... This could be a thing in future projects, and this might be like a beta test for it. And Tiffany is kind of the perfect collaborator to try this out with. We already have special boxes costing extra. This is just Nike taking it to the next level. What if for the next off-white shoe, there's an extra gold-colored zip tie that costs, you know, $200 and is limited to 100 only? People would be going nuts just for that zip tie. We saw Heineken jump on the trend and release their own version of the New York Times ad. As people have talked about, and basically what I've heard as well too, is that there is no Heineken SB. Maybe there is Heineken colored dunks on the way. If they are, it's a GR and not an official collab. 
And Heineken knows this and can jump on the wave and get people talking about Heineken by basically copying the ad because there's enough kernel of truth. There's enough people who already believe it anyways out there. So as I was saying, it's hard for these big company marketing people to make something viral themselves, but it's easier to jump on something else and create their own version of it and react to something. That's exactly what it's called. It's called reactive advertising or reaction advertising. You jump on a piece of topical content, you make it tongue in cheek. There has to be a kernel of truth to it, or it has to be like absurd. So it's obvious that there's no kernel of truth to it. But for this one, it was perfect because there's already a Heineken SB in the past that had legal issues back then and talk of one coming out soon as well too, even if it's not official. But the problem with reactive advertising is you get some likes and some clicks and that's about it. Maybe you get a viral moment off someone else's wave, but do you get any cash in your pocket? Was anyone thirsting for a Heineken? As I've been talking about in this episode, reacting is not always the best strategy. Being proactive would more likely get you more money in your pocket. But back to the Tiffany Air Force One, this is an LVMH company and, you know, the brand that owns Off-White and tons of other designer companies like Givenchy or Fendi or Dior. But Tiffany themselves has seemingly taken a hit in recent years. So I totally see where the brand is like, we got to get the kids with the NFTs and their Force Ones. And they hired uh, a creative director, Ruba, who was probably responsible for this whole collaboration. And she's already gone. She's already left. So... The other person in charge is that Bernard Arnault, the guy who's the CEO of LVMH and a billionaire or whatever. His son is in charge of Tiffany, I guess. And he was at courtside and people were making fun of him and stuff like that. But most likely, this is probably just phase one of LVMH and Nike and them most likely paying Nike for these collaborations. Like I said, I would not be shocked if they paid Nike to collaborate with them. And I would not be shocked if there's more LVMH Nike collaborations coming out with Givenchy or Fendi or more Dior's or whatever. In terms of the shoe, how it looks, I've already seen a lot of flip-flopping. It went from, you know, what are those, oh, those dusty-ass shoes to, oh, they are right now. Personally, I've always been in the, they are right camp. It's just not for me. It's one of those shoes where I would buy and cop and resell if I hit, which I'm sure a lot of other people are thinking as well, too. I didn't think it was going to be a brick. And in terms of stock levels, if they wanted to be ambitious, they could have made 10K, like say the Dior Jordans were, or, you know, have that and make it 5K. But, you know, rumors are it could be as low as a thousand and that even that would not shock me. But to me, you know, a black Air Force One is always a black Air Force One. You can't escape the black Air Force One allegations. The The Collar and Kaepernick one was fire. The, the CPFM one with the flea on the side, that one was nice. The social status one is nice too. So there have been nice versions of the Black Air Force One. I saw that they has like a leather sock liner and, you know, an early Mr. Brightside is leather sock liner kind of sucks because it pulls your socks down. And the suede on it is the ashy suede. So, you know, you can just kind of brush that to make it less ashy. I saw that it has tumbled leather on the heel and the eye stay. And I was wondering about that. Why is everything else this nice suede and that part is tumbled leather? And then I kind of got the answer from the PG Nose Instagram. On his stories, he was asking the, basically the same thing. And then someone replied to him that said, most shoes have a target price point. And so where there's area where the leather has to be harder, like the eye stays and the heel, they probably went with a cheaper option because it requires harder leather instead of supple leather. So that's most likely what happened. Shout out PG Nose for that. But in terms of a design... You know, what else could they have done? How else could it have looked like? 
imagine a white Air Force One with a teal swoosh. If you actually search Air Force One teal on StockX, you'll see that they basically released a version of like that last year. And as I've been talking about customizers and stuff, they've been already making Tiffany Air Force Ones for a while. It's very possible that designers Googled custom Tiffany Air Force Ones, saw what's out there. And as I've said, any design, any artist has to create within a space of what is already out there and what people have already seen. That's why I said, if, if dot swoosh becomes a hit, they can at least look in their own ecosystem instead of Googling it. I saw people make some attempts at Photoshop, so ooh, Air Force One could have been fire if it looked like this, and they all just look terrible. So the black Air Force One, I guess, was the way to go, even if at first it was a bit jarring. But with sneakerheads, we can talk ourselves into anything. It doesn't really matter. People are buying these Tom Sachs general purpose shoes, even though they're turd brown. Travis Scott wore a uh, Air Max 270 and it sells for four or $500. Who else gives a shit about 270s? It's not like sneakerheads give a shit about the Air Max 270. It's usually a gym shoe. But, you know, we can flip-flop. Everyone has a couple flip-flops a year, so go ahead. We're not judging. You know, in poker, you say you have a one-time. Maybe for flip-flops, you have a one-time, so you get one a year. So times have been tough lately for consignment shops. A lot closing up shop or owing people money or both. Uh, we saw cookies and kicks in LA close, round two closed down. There's people that owe people money, like allegedly Teddy Souls and banned LA as well. Meanwhile, other stores are doing quite fine. It seems like they're opening new locations like Gabe with Request Boutique, Private Selections opening a new one. District One is taking over New York and opening up in the old location where round two was upscale crack has his own location as well too and urban necessities is another one where i saw that they opened a store in saudi arabia i guess the name was blood money necessities but that's one of those things where i don't think sneakerheads care that much about geopolitics and saudi arabia and things like that you know you might see someone bring up what about Nike using sweatshops kind of as an argument, but they don't really give a shit. It's usually back to their bullshit. Anyways, but a side note on the Saudi Arabia stuff, I see Saudi Arabia making more of a play into maybe not sneakers per se, but at least high fashion. There's this concept called sports washing where the Saudi government or their investment fund that the Saudi government owns is getting into golf and soccer and pro wrestling with WWE you know, to kind of distract from the fact that they killed a journalist. So I would not be surprised if they get more into fashion or, you know, fashion washing or sneaker washing. I wouldn't be shocked if they bought a stake in some of these big fashion conglomerates. But, you know, 2J is a guy like that. He's a hustler. He's going to go for the bag. He's not going to turn down a bag, no matter where it's from. But that store is heavy on consignment, too. So I'm sure he's feeling the pinch, too, when it comes to consignment. So I was just thinking about consignment as a concept. Do you trust these stores to give them your sneakers and to be paid out at appropriate time? You know, the concept seems great for a boom period, but we're not exactly in a boom period right now. So it doesn't seem like it's the greatest business strategy right now. And a lot of the stores have already adjusted even before this kind of recession thing said. A lot of them had turned to doing only buyouts because dealing with consignment and people wanting their money and all that kind of stuff has its own headaches. Some of these uh, sneaker shops have been opening up their own podcast, so they go into a bit more of this detail than I ever will. So what happened? You know, the market, as we said, is different now. It's not a boom period. And sourcing product is harder than ever. Every single store does not have enough Panda Dunks. They could sell more and more of those. They, they could sell, like I joked in the past, they could be a Panda Express if they could get enough. 
So the number one issue then is securing product either through buyouts or backdoor relationships or botters. And a lot of the botters, they have their own operation. They'll sell it themselves. They can probably get more on GOAT than they would someone who's lowballing. But, you know, bulk is bulk. It's a bit different. But an example of not being able to get enough product as before are Yeezys. You know, Kanye didn't keep his mouth shut, so this is where we are with Yeezys. And the well is going to run dry eventually. So a lot of the better stores probably started stocking up on Yeezys right when he started talking crazy. But we don't know exactly what the future is. Adidas could flood consignment store market with all the inventory that they, you know, publicly can't sell, the, the $1.2 billion, I guess. And that's where a place like Goat is perfect for that because they have their fulfillment branch with 1661 Inc. already set up. But as we talked about at the top, you know, I'm sure that will happen. I'm sure they'll start getting rid of that kind of stuff. The other thing, what happened with all these stores, lack of business skills. Like, are these high school grads with any knowledge of basic business skills like cash flow, accounting, and paying taxes? I've seen countless stories of people skipping school because they want to be the hustler. They want to be, you know, their own boss. Which is all fine and good, but like I said, do you know the basics of cash flow? Do you have accountants? Are you paying your taxes? Or is this all, you know, back of the napkin, street hustling accounting with retail hours? What else happened? They might have gotten scammed. They might have been overly invested in Zeta Kicks and these other kind of people who are selling fake essentials and shit like that. Maybe they're just victims of Zeta and thought it was all on the up and up and now they got scammed. Or maybe they're scammers themselves. They got loose morals. I sold these guys off-white fours, but now I'm just going to keep that money because it's it's in my hand. That's cash in my hand. You know, I wrote IOUs. Those are as good as money. Go ahead and add it up. All this, of course, leads to the Band LA store and the Band LA guy who allegedly owes up to $100,000 or more. The owner announced in a post that he's going to rehab and promises to pay it all back. So I'll break this down sort of in a nice version and a not nice version. That way I can play both sides. So the nice version, you know, don't kick a man when he's down. Admitting you have a problem and taking the steps to address the problem are very admirable to me. And I saw people in the comments, friends, I guess, have been reaching out and stood by him and said, you know, you got this, bro. And it's good to have the support of your peers when you're going through something. Okay, and now the not nice version. The not nice version is basically, fuck you, pay me. Oh, you got problems? I got problems too. I'm missing money. Fuck you, pay me. Oh, those Travis ones on your feet in your fit pick and your rehab announcement? I'll fucking take the whole foot then. Fuck you, pay me. Oh, you got famous friends? Well, tell your famous friend to pay me. I was thinking about grifter tactics as I talked about grifter marketing in the last podcast. A grifter tactic is just to delay, delay, delay. Make promises, promise to pay back. It works if you've got people hypnotized with these false promises. They'll still keep believing it. And allegedly, people kept working for him for free on store credit and stuff. So, And another thing is, you know, those friends in the comment with the prayer hands emoji saying, you got this, bro. In a way, it's enabling the illusion that this person is good and honorable and will pay you back because it almost becomes an implicit endorsement of this person publicly. You know, I understand being concerned about a friend, but doing so publicly might give off the impression that you think that this person is of a high character. But you have to ask yourself, is this person going to pay these people back? Are you exactly sure about that? That's why, you know, one of the keys for any business is trust. It's the most important thing you can have in your business. If there's no trust, why would anyone want to go to your store? Why would anyone give you their sneakers for you to sell? Why would they trust you that you're going to pay me that money when that sneaker sells? 
They found my customer and this store has scammed people of money. Why would I trust them that they wouldn't scam me of money? Why would I trust them that they're giving me legit product then, authentic product? It's saying, oh, no, no, we scam our consigners, but all our product is authentic. And we care about that a lot. This other part over here, trust us, bro. We don't care about these assholes. We're not paying them. But you, customer, we would never sell you a fake. You might be thinking that one has nothing to do with the other, that uh, you can be scamming people on this side, but on the other side, you could have authentic product. But I'm talking about trust. Can you truly trust this person that they say it's authentic? Because they've already shown and proven that they will scam. So it's very likely they will scam you too, because trust has already been broken. The band LA name was a trusted name in sneakers for years. So was this guy. Now, you know, what's this guy got? He's got less than zero trust. And it's a long road ahead to rebuild trust. It starts with rehab, I guess, then paying everyone back and making any other amends. Then you're back to zero. And then you got to start building your name again. Or you can just declare bankruptcy, tell everyone to fuck off, continue posting fit pics. You know, just go on your IG stories, prayer hands moji and say, I pray you get your money back and continue on with your day. But in terms of consignment stores and these resale stores, they'll stick around it's the survival of the fittest, the ones that have the best business skills, that are paying their taxes, that have accountants, the ones that can source product, the ones that have built trust. Because in sneakers, in resale, there's always going to be people who want a sneaker that they couldn't get and need it right now and are willing to pay for it. So go build trust with them. Okay, final segment is about Nike suing Bape. This is, I guess, the legal corner of Sock Jig. I can't remember what I called it before. I ain't past the bar, but I know a little bit. So Nike is suing Bape, finally, saying that they're causing harm to their brand. You know, the usual stuff, the usual legal blah, blah, blah. We own the trade dress, there's market confusion. And after 20 years, is it really market confusion? You know, in the examples that they show in the court documents, it's always examples from like Grail or eBay. And oftentimes that's just a seller putting keywords in there, hoping to get as many eyes on it as possible. I don't think there's really that much market confusion. But the big question is, why now? And Nike answers this in their lawsuit document. It says that BAPE has increased the volume and scope of infringement since 2021. But really, this is part of their overall goal of getting these high-scale customs and knockoffs out of the paint. And also knock out the argument about, well, you guys didn't sue BAPE, so I'm fine. But I wanted to key in a few things here in this legal ease to kind of determine why Nike said the things they said and why they're suing now. So... One of the first things that they mention is that they met with Bape back in 2009 in a meeting. And in the document, it says, quote, Despite its minimal presence in the U.S. market, Nike contacted and met with Bape in 2009 to address Bape's pirating of the Air Force One. That same year, Nego stepped down as Bape's CEO. Okay, let me just cut in here. You know, Nego's been gone for a long time, and people still think he's working behind the counter at Bape in Tokyo somewhere. So it continues, quote, Shortly thereafter, in 2010, Bape closed all but one of its U.S. stores. In 2011, Bape shifted his focus from already waning U.S. presence to its Chinese and Taiwanese audiences, following its acquisition by Hong Kong fashion conglomerate IT Limited. Then in 2016, Bape redesigned the Bape style to less resemble Nike's designs, end quote. Okay, I read that in full because I wanted to key in on what happened in the meeting. It does not sound like they got any legal agreement in that meeting, just a conversation or just the threats. That could have been a phone call or email exchange. 
if they got a legal agreement, they would have said, hey, we got a legal agreement. But apparently they did not. So why didn't Nike press on it? Why didn't they go further? If I was a judge, I would ask Nike to explain to me why you didn't sue back then. But some of the wording and phrasing here, it gives a big clue into what Nike is doing. It says stuff like, despite its minimal presence in the U.S., shifted its focus from its already waning U.S. presence. Another quote later in the document is, quote, Bape began selling its products in the U.S. in the mid-2000, but Bape faced a number of problems in the U.S. footwear market due to scarcity of product and high pricing. Its presence and product offerings in the U.S. footwear market were limited and not widely available through online websites or markets. Instead, upon information and belief, Bape's footwear was only available through its New York and L.A. stores, which opened in 2005 and 2006, but through its U.S. web store, which did not open till 2009. During this time, Bape struggled to cultivate the same type of hype it had built in Japan. End quote. So, in my legal analysis... They are using this kind of language of talking down to Bape to explain why they didn't sue earlier. They are basically negging Bape and diminishing their relevance and appeal and calling them just this tiny shithole company that barely made a dent in the industry and struggled to maintain or create any hype. Meanwhile, Bape basically wrote the playbook of how to do limited drops and build hype. Now, Nike conveniently saying Bape had problems because of scarcity of product and high pricing. When that was the entire point, it was designed that way to be scarce and high priced. And now they've copied that same playbook, put it at scale at a Nike level, and now they're suing Bape 20 years later. So I think that's why it's written this way. That's why they're calling Bape all these names and shit like that, because they're trying to explain why they didn't sue. That this was just some shithole company, they couldn't make it in the US, so it wasn't even worthy of suing them. And now that they've grown a bit bigger and got taken over by a big fashion conglomerate and are starting cranking the designs out, we are now suing them now. In Bape's defense, I was talking with my buddy V and DSNK, and he was pointing out there's legal terms called laches, which means Nike has to have sued in a timely manner. And, you know, Bape's going to do the usual stuff of Nike stifling competition and trade dress of some squiggles and side-by-side photos is not enough proof. But really, Bape is not innocent. They really did get greedy. They really did start cranking out those designs and collabs in 2021. And as I said earlier, I know of at least one that has been canceled after this lawsuit. So wouldn't be surprised if a lot more of these collabs are canceled. The other thing is, this is the Donahue era of Nike, not the Mark Parker era. It's the era of the number CEO, not the shoe dog CEO. Disney had the same issue where... Bob Iger brought in some numbers corporate guy and then kicked him to the curb because he was not adequate, didn't understand the business. But Mark Parker is not walking through that door. The number CEO is there to stay, and he's got no loyalty to Nego and Nego's relationships or any of that. But overall, how this will end, we already kind of know. It will most likely end in a settlement. Nike has almost always settled lawsuits related to Air Force One trade dress because They don't want to go to court, get a rogue judge who tosses it out and potentially kicks into motion a whole process of Nike losing their trade dress. And in this case, it's not just Air Force One. There's the Dunk and Jordan and all kinds of models in this court document. So most likely it's settled. Most likely Bape just kind of tweaks back to that older design where it was less infringing on the Air Force One. Then they go back to the factory and start cranking out these Bapes again. Okay, to recap some of the themes of this episode, 
First off, artificial intelligence can be biased based on the information it's fed. Luxury brands probably pay for the right to do collabs with Nike. Building a dedicated and commodifiable audience is the way to go if you're a smaller brand. And the test of if you can go viral is simply if you can go viral. Reactive marketing just gets you cheap likes and doesn't put money in your pocket. We learned you shouldn't burn bridges over a tiny square in a collage. And it turns out learning some basic business skills is an important part of running a business. And we learned that trust is the most important thing in business and relationships. Finally, the most important thing we learned is that you should go fuck yourself. 